we continue this morning looking at what Alfie Church is, but this last two sermons focuses more specifically on the practice of a healthy church. So there are two parts to this last sermon. This week we'll deal with how a healthy church should look and, and respond to one another, and then how a healthy church should plan for the future. And I'll give you those points later. So we've looked thus far at the theological and biblical foundations of a healthy church. The church, however, is to be the buttress and the pillar of the truth. It doesn't mean that we are just those who observe the truth, those who believe the truth, but those who are supposed to support the truth. That is not orthodoxy. That is orthopraxy. That is what we are supposed to do with the truth. We are supposed to be men and women and churches that are firm, immovable, when it comes to the truth. But the buttress supports the walls. It keeps the structure up. It's an analogy that speaks of the duty of the church as it relates to the Word of God. So when churches determine that they choose their own path that deviates from the Word of God, they are not being a buttress or a support or a pillar of the truth. However, those churches carve out its own truth and demote the truth of God under their convictions. As mentioned before, Biblical churches are the antidote to the rise of false teaching, aberrant living, and false churches. Deviation from the standard is only possible when we minimize the standard. Now all that will mean nothing if we as a church do not put into practice what we believe. When we speak of healthy churches, we are not speaking about a perfect church by no means. We are speaking about a maturing church that has love for God, first of all, and then love for His saints. Those two qualities will inevitably demonstrate a love for the lost. You cannot love God without loving his people, and without loving the lost. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. <clears throat> and he, this is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the building up of the body. Take note of verse 13. Until, until, that's a temporal marker. The function of both pastoral ministry and the building up of the body is until a certain end. Until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The implication of the verse is that God will continue to provide His church with godly leaders as they invest into the lives of God's people and as God's people do the work of ministry. But notice the next line, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. So that there would be maturity. For what purpose? So that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the, waves and, uh, by the waves and carried about by the wind of doctrine, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So God provides pastor teachers so that the church may grow in its discernment and an ability and ability to resist false teaching. 
God does that. It's essential that we have godly leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. It is essential that the church of Jesus Christ grows in its knowledge of Christ. How do we do this? Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. That's the idea of maturing. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now listen to verse 16. Love this verse. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. I don't know if you got that. Who causes the growth? God and the working properly, working uh, together of the saints. When each part does its part, then the body causes itself to grow. But who provides the growth? It is Christ who provides the growth. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. It is Christ who gives every joint and believer to the body. And as the believer does the work of ministry, as the believer continually grows in his ability to um, discern and apply the truth, that makes the body grow. But notice, it is the truth spoken in love. Again, we get back to the importance of the truth. The truth causes the body to work properly. And when it grows, it builds itself Knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of the word must filter down into action. That is what Paul is talking about. It's not just knowing the truth, being able to discern the error, but also affecting that error by speaking the truth and working in the church so that Christ can be magnified and the church be built up or matured as believers, work. Knowledge of God must filter down to the roots of the church where it produces maturity in the pew of the church and can result in the rejection of false teaching in the church. Who does this? It is Christ who causes the growth. It is Christ who provides teachers. It is Christ who causes maturity in his church. For from him, to him, through him, be all things. To him be the glory. Maturity, maturity or maturity is growing both in the knowledge of Christ and having that knowledge be demonstrated on a horizontal level. The understanding of a healthy church must move the church from orthodoxy to orthopraxy. We must be able to go from what we believe as being absolute truth to how we practice that truth. It must affect not only our hearts and minds, that's where orthodoxy resides, but also our hands and feet, that is where orthopraxy is seen. In other words, there must be a holistic effect of believing the truth, not just a cognitive effect. We are not only supposed to believe and affirm the truth, speak the truth, but also we should be doing the truth. This is what a healthy church looks like. And we will see in Acts chapter 2 an example of a church that are not only believed the truth, but applied the truth. This morning we will see the first of two important practices, practices that define a healthy church. Why? So that we as a local church can better understand and respond to the call of God for being a healthy church. So number one, a healthy church must be devoted. It must be devoted. There are three areas that devotion is demonstrated. 
devotion to the truth, devotion to the saints, and then de demonstration of care. I was going to say devotion um, in caring, but then it changes my, my last um, uh, uh, object into a participle. So I didn't want to do that. But anyway, next week we will see it must advance the gospel. So first of all, it must be devoted, and then it must advance the gospel. Told you that's where I was going to end. And so that's when next week we will come back and we will look at how it is important for us as a local church to be mission-minded, to be evangelistic, to be church-planting. So let's give attention to the reality of a healthy church, a God-honoring church, in that it must be devoted. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Unlike the other uh, sermons, this one will focus on this passage alone, and there are other examples that I will use from other passages, but this will be our main substantive passage. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. The first essential practice of a biblical healthy church is that it practices devotion. Let me say that again. A biblical, godly, healthy church practices devotion. It does not pick up a devotional, but it actively pursues devotion. That word devotion has been snatched away and stolen by the idea of reading a devotional. That's cognitive. That's informational. That's taking up information into your heart. But that's not application. Devotion by its very nature is application in its expectation. So when we think of this word devotion, most of us are probably thinking of picking up a book and reading it on a Monday morning. Or a type of study. I'm, I'm doing a a devotional study through Habakkuk. Good luck with that. When we think of this word, we think of a specific approach to the spiritual life. None of that captures the idea of devotion. So what does this word mean? It means to be earnest towards or to persevere. It describes a single, steadfasted mindedness, a fidelity to a certain course of action. It means to persist obstinately like a child who refuses to move from doing what you tell it to stop doing. To keep on keeping on. To continue to do something with intense effort and steadfastness. I think you get the point, right? There's a perseverance in devotion. He describes that single, steadfast-minded fidelity to activity. The tense of the word intensifies the meaning here. In fact, the sense is this, that they kept on devoting themselves. It was a normative action, an ongoing, persistent devotion. In other words, devotion was an activity. Notice in 42, they kept on as an ongoing reality devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowships, fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the hallmark of a healthy church. Listen, a healthy church is not a church that doesn't have any problems. It's not a church that is perfect. It's a growing church that understands its priority of devotion. 
we see in this prototype of the first church, the first community of saints, that this was a regular habit of existence. Devoted saints make healthy churches. You will not get a healthy church without saints being devoted in that church. This devotion that uh, Luke is talking about is not private devotion. It's not inward devotion, but it is visible, external devotion. It's an activity that has tangible elements to it. When we think of devotion, we think of inward devotion. Many of us will need to restructure our thinking about this word. Now they devoted themselves to four key elements in this local church. Notice what it says. They devoted themselves, number one, to the apostles' teaching. Number two, to the teaching, uh, sorry, to the fellowships. Uh, number three, to the breaking of bread. And number four, the prayers. Now, it is technically only two. And I'll explain that when I get to it later on. They are technically only to the apostles' teaching and the fellowships. But you won't go lost if you believe that they are four. It's okay. So the first thing that they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. A healthy church devotes itself to the truth. How important is this? Notice the starting point is the apostles' doctrine. So let's consider that for a moment. Today, experience or association is seen as devotion to the truth. I know such and such a one who knows such a one, and he is really sound. And so you consider that to be your act of devotion. Or you consider your experience as a means of being devoted. Oh, I had such a wonderful time in worship today. What does it say? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is synonymous with the truth. You can put truth in there and it would mean the same thing. I believe that as the community of saints at Living Hope, we are devoted to the truth. That's why we are here. We are not devoted to a person. We are not committed to an individual. We are not committed to an association. We are not committed to this church because somebody went somewhere and he got some degree. If you are here for that reason, go find another church. When we replace the primacy of the truth with uh, uh, devotion then we are not growing in our devotion, but replacing it with a pseudo-devotion. There is and there can be no replacement for the Word of God. Our devotion must first and foremost be to the truth. The early church did not have any gimmicks. They did not have any techniques or approaches to ministry to win people over. You will see in a moment's time, they were committed to the truth, and that commitment in and of itself had a visceral effect in the community. They focused on the truth. Why the truth? Why the apostles' teaching? Yes, why? Because there's nothing else that can sustain and sanctify the church of Christ than the truth of God. There is nothing else that we need as a local assembly that will keep us and that will sanctify us. And you will see this now in chapter 4 through to chapter 6. Take note, devotion through the truth sustain them through persecution. Chapter 4, verse 8. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, rulers of the people and elders, 
if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done by uh, to the uh, a crippled man by what means this man has been healed let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone and there is no salvation in anyone else for no for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved religious leaders calling peter to account for the work that they did and he says you are calling me to account for what god did through jesus christ in this person he gives them the gospel why because the truth will sustain you regardless before whom you stand look down at verse 20 verse 19 but peter and john answered them whether it is right in the sight of god to listen to you rather than to god you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and when they had further threatened them they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising god for what had happened they were not intimidated by religious leaders by the religious leaders but were devoted to the truth chapter 5 verse 42 take note and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus that the messiah is Jesus they were told to stop speaking in the name stop talking about this man and what did they do they went about speaking about the man Jesus who is Christ the government tried to shut them down chapter 6 verse 2 6 verse 2 no it's probably 5 2 i think i wrote down 522 i believe it was or maybe not if i find it i will mention it um they did not neglect the preaching of the word of god i think i just read it it's where they say it's it's not desirable for us to neglect the preaching of the word um, oh no it is in 62 uh, after finding a problem in a church um at the end of verse 1 sorry now in the, the these days when the disciples were increasing in number uh, a complaint by the hellenists arose against the hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the 12 summoned the full number uh, of the disciples and said to them it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of god to serve tables the priority of the apostles was to the word of god most notably what happened because of their devotion to the truth is that the word of god kept on being uh, proclaimed kept on spreading look at chapter 6 verse 7 and the word of god continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied multiplied greatly in jerusalem and great many of the priests became obedient to the truth why is that because the truth was not shut up they kept on preaching it the early church was devoted to this truth even in the midst of persecution as they were being spread abroad they remained faithful to the truth that is what is behind the devotion to the apostles teaching it was not just a cognitive uh, um uh, devotion 
It was not just saying that we believed in it. It was a practice of devotion. When push came to shove, when the government came knocking on their doors, they remained faithful to the truth, willing to give up their lives for the sake of the truth. Never being willing to compromise the truth. That is what it means to be devoted to the truth. Look at chapter 6, verse 4. And we will devote ourselves to the prayer and to the ministry of the word. Devotion to the word of God marked the early church. We find an illustration of devotion to the truth in Paul's epistle to Titus. You don't have to turn to it. But Paul writes to him in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, but as for you, speak the things that accord to sound doctrine. Teach the things that accords, that falls in line with godly, sound, biblical doctrine. In the context of the book, it is a pastoral book. And he's encouraging Titus to not let, hold, let go of the baton of the truth of the word of God. So he instructs both Timothy and Titus, because he does it in both, to be faithful to the teaching of the truth. Don't deviate, don't replace, don't compromise, don't refrain from investing into the lives of God's people the essential nature of His truth. Devote yourself to the sacred trust. Why? Because lives will be changed by it. You are not changed by me telling you what to do. You are changed by the clear preaching of God's word. And it is the spirit of God that takes the word of God, applies it to your heart. You feel the conviction and you are changed by the word. Notice that Paul does not say to Titus, Make sure you break down the doctrine as small as possible. Make sure that you make it as practical as possible. I don't know about you, but whenever I read the Word of God, it is practical in nature. There's doctrine, but it always gets followed with practice, application. No, speak it as you receive it. Sadly, today, the truth has been preached in such a way that, and, and I understand why certain pastors do it, they, they say, oh, a two-year-old needs to understand it. Yeah, but if you are accommodating to the lowest denominator in the congregation, if it's a two-year-old, you're going to miss the majority of the congregation. As they are growing up, kids, as they are growing up in the the church, as they are growing up hearing sound doctrine, the word of God will change their hearts. You don't need to break it down to such a degree that it is crumbs that not even dogs would eat. Preaching needs to be clear and it needs to be biblical. If it is clear and if it is biblical, God will use it. But if we take liberty by breaking it to such a degree that it is unrecognizable from the original intent of the author, we are presuming upon the word of God that we think that we have the capacity to change people's lives. What's the implication? The word of God must be given preached and taught, unvarnished, unpolished, and unspoiled, unaffected by our own personal opinions. Why is this important? If we reduce the truth of God's word to soundbite, we lose its weightiness. We lose its gravitas. You know that word, right? Gravity is, uh, is akin to it, gravitas. And if it loses its weightiness and its gravitas, then it loses its authority. We are not helping you if we are taking the word of God and making it purely practical. Think back to Acts 2. 
What happened when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? The entirety of their lives were affected. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, however far you want to go. Look at how their lives are affected by their devotion to the truth. The very first element that is essential to a healthy church or the practice of a healthy church is devotion to the truth. It permeated their lives. It permeated the conversation. It permeated their decisions. It permeated their convictions. And it permeated their responses. Likewise, if we are devoted to the truth, it will permeate our lives. It will permeate our conversations. It will permeate our decisions. It will permeate our convictions. And it will permeate our responses. I'm concerned that the church today has become so enamored by application that we avoid a constant deluge under the word of God. Our conversations, our interests, our convictions, and our responses must be in and through the word of God, but our devotion to the truth is betrayed by the way that we relate to the truth. So firstly, a healthy church is a church that possesses believers that are devoted to the truth. Secondly, a healthy church is a church that devotes itself to the saints. Look at the text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Now, there is something that is often missed in this text. Look at the beginning of verse 42. It says, they. Who are the they? Verse 41. And those who received his word were baptized. You already see obedience to the word of God. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 3,000. 3,000 devoting themselves to the word. 3,000 devoting themselves to the saints. Devotion was not some philosophical discussion or something that they uh, uh, wanted to do. Devotion was a practice, an ongoing reality for all of these saints. 3,000 of them. Let, let that sink in. Not a wonder they were a force to be reckoned with. There wasn't one believer that said, you know what? I'm tired this morning. I ain't going to church. There wasn't one believer that said, you know what? Persecution is breaking out. Uh, not for me. There was not one believer that said, I don't think I feel well enough to go to church today. All of them devoted themselves to the apostle teachings and the fellowship. Wow. I don't know about you, but 3,000, I mean, this is a mega church. And within a mega church today, I can guarantee you if there's 4,000, you are not going to get 4,000 devotees. Not all of them are going to be fully 100% all in all the time. Yes, it is in the initiation of the church. There was a special down payment of the Spirit at this stage. This was no spiritual hip-hop get-together on a Sunday morning. This was an intimate, personal, invested devotion by the saints to the Lord for the saints. You'll see that in a moment's time. So, they were devoted to, be, to mutual beneficial Activity. You see this in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. See this little word, fellowship, or not so little word, fellowship. It's the word that Victor is trying to teach LZ. How do you say it, LZ? <laughs> Koinonia. Koinonia. From 
koinos, which means common, and it's used later on as well. It's a common word. Most of you know the word koinonia. And I know some say koinonia, but it's koinonia. It describes the experience of having something in common or sharing something in common with someone else. So the word in, in, in by, by itself is relational. This devotion is not only to the truth, but as a relational element to it, to the fellowship. While they were different, even though they were all Jews, they were different as individuals, male, female, and you get different people within a given race. Just look at the colored community. I mean, yes, white people can be different, but they are generally the same. But, <laughs> but my goodness, within the colored community, I tell you so much. Ay, ay, ay. I found, I was speaking to, uh, when we were in, in Uganda, um, I, I'm very intrigued by African culture. And as we were walking down the road, um, just looking at these various cultures and how they do things, um, what is interesting that even within the African community or African culture, there are subcultures. There is such a variety of differences. Now, I may not be able to see it, but John, he knew. Uh, it's so interesting. One of the guys, he um, came a day later. He would tell me about the, the eight different bananas that they have in Uganda. Eight different bananas. And he said, if you look at that leaf, and you look at that leaf, and they all look the same to me. But he knew, and which is, okay, I, mean, I suppose it has some sort of benefit. But <laughs> point being that there's such a variety of different personalities, differences in the church of Jesus Christ, yet they devoted themselves to one another. Common fellowship, commonality, revolving around one person, Jesus Christ. They were saved to be in community with one another, not themselves. This word has the idea of joint participation, cooperation, or sharing in a common interest or activity. It is not personal. You may participate in fellowship, but you don't fellowship by yourself. Fellowship by yourself makes absolutely no sense. You cannot sit online streaming into a given church, wherever you are, person streaming online, and think that you have fellowship with that believer. You don't. Let me show you how this word is used in a variety of different contexts. It is a word that describes and defines what God has bestowed upon believers. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It is something that is innate to the community of saints. Paul, in verse uh, 11, Paul starts in this greeting to demonstrate the unique oneness of the body of Jesus Christ. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, being stitched together. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. In other words, have an interrelational relationship with one another. Live in peace, that is by implication, with one another. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, let me just qualify that. Saints, the command is to greet. Greet one another. It is not with a holy kiss. So, men, no. I'm just saying that there is a clear command. The cultural nuance is with a holy kiss. The clear command is greet one another. Now, we, we shake hands or we, we, um, we hit each other's, like baboons, each other's chests. So, Greet one another with a holy chest knock or something like that. All the saints greet you. Now notice this last one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
It's something that is bestowed by God. That there is communion with the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we have communion with one another. Secondly, it is the Holy Spirit. It is a Holy Spirit uh, sanctioned and blessed companionship. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and participation in the Spirit, fellowship in the Spirit, um, and affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but, with, but in humility, Count others more significant than yourselves. It is what the Spirit provides to the community of saints. Companionship, being of the same mind, being of the same accord, caring more for others than you do for yourself. That's the expression of participation with the Spirit. There's a relational aspect to it. Thirdly, we can also have fellowship in the gospel. Philippians chapter 1 verse 5. Take notice of what Paul says. And because of your fellowship, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So fellowship can be used in a variety of different ways. We, we participate is the idea. This is ongoing support and ongoing involvement. Go back to Acts chapter 2. You can see that in Acts 2 now. And they devoted themselves as an ongoing reality, constantly devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the communal benefit of fellowship. Now, take a close look in the text. Now it may not be as obvious in the English. Now I said to you there's technically two which is the apostles teaching and the fellowship. Why do I say that? Now um, I'm going to use a grammatical term and if you uh, get a little bit confused um, you can come and ask it on Wednesday. If I can just there you go. <clears throat> if you look in the text at the in the middle of verse 42 it says to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. But it does not say, and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. By implication, the technical word is, it is um, in an appositional relationship. That's the technical word. Now, I think you can understand it. A positional. A positional relationship. There you got it, right? Makes sense. There's a positional relationship between the two. So look at it and you will see the positional relationship. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the connection or the demonstration of this fellowship is in the breaking of bread and the prayers. You see it? So the fellowship can be defined by what they do on a regular basis as saints meeting together. What do they do? Breaking bread, praying together. So fellowship is not just having a cup of coffee with another believer. It is not what we do on a Sunday morning when we have breaking of bread, after the breaking of bread, where we are having nice tea and cake and maybe some samosas. That is not what fellowship is. The breaking of bread and the prayers that we participate in as a community of saints, that is what fellowship is. So the text is literally saying that they're devoting themselves, they're prioritizing, they're making sure that they give themselves as an ongoing reality to the truth. And when the saints meet together. Why? Because when the saints meet together, they break bread and they pray together. Fellowship is expressed in breaking bread and praying with God's people. 
there is, it's not limited to, but that is the, the, the textual, the contextual explanation of what it is. There are other aspects of fellowship, like, for instance, participating in gospel ministry. We are fellowshipping with John. They were devoted to meeting together. Now, let me summarize the last part of us two in one word. They devoted themselves to teaching, to the truth, and they devoted themselves to worship. Breaking of bread and prayers can be defined as worship. They prioritized what mattered most, the truth and the worship of God. Breaking of bread and prayers was a priority, or worship was a priority. They devoted themselves to it. It was an essential part of their existence. Let me bring this into modern parlance. Devotion to the breaking of bread and the prince means that nothing, absolutely nothing will stand in your way to your devotion to worship. Your devotion to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. No tiredness. No regulation, no personal desire, no sports day will come between you and your devotion to the truth and worship. Today, worship has become an aspect of convenience. When I can, I will go. I don't see that in the Bible. If it does not dominate your life, if it does not dominate your life as a regular habit within the week, it will not be a priority on a Sunday morning. Worship, truth, and fellowship must dominate our lives. It must. And you will see the effect of that as we go on through the text. I know, I know, I'm halfway through my sermon and I'm supposed to be done in five minutes. And I thank you for your grace. So I will finish briefly. Look at the effect of this devotion. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. There was a sense, and I think the all year upon every soul is actually limited to the church. I know that those, uh, there are those who believe that it's outside of the church, but it makes sense within the context of um, what is happening in this devoted community that there's a sense of awe at what God is doing. 3,000 believers devoting themselves to truth and worship. Yeah, that is something to be at awe at, to marvel at. That can only be the work of God. I'll give you an illustration from church history. Christian fellowship was seen as a unique activity that served as a testimony in the early church. Tertullian recounts when a Roman gov governor uh, became suspicious of the early church, and they sent spies into the church services. Let's go see what they are doing. And the spies came back to them, uh, to him, and said to him, "We were these Christians are peculiar folk. They do not have idols. Instead, they worship one by the name of Jesus, but he's not there. They're not buying before somebody. He's not there, but they they worship him." And they added. Quote, but how those Christians love one another and how they have fellowship, cononia, with one another. End quote. Two things that marked them was love and fellowship. The mark of the early church was seen in how they cared for each other and how they demonstrated their love to uh, the saints. 
So we've seen that the healthy church devotes itself to the truth, devotes itself to the saints. And now finally, it demonstrates care for one another. And this is the result of a devoted community of saints. Look at verse 44 to 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. I mean, there's a lot here. So let me mention the three elements and then I'll wrap it up. Three important components that results from a devoted community of saints. Number one, constant, constant, constant togetherness. Number two, personal connectedness. And number three, a willing sacrifice. I was told not to do that in a homiletics class. If you're going to do like um, connectedness, togetherness, you need to have anotherness at the end. But I could not make sacrificeness make sense. And so I left it out. So constant togetherness, personal connectedness, and willing sacrifice. Take note how it says that they met day by day. Verse 46, day by day attending the temple. And were in each other's homes receiving food and breaking bread. There was a togetherness, a tangible bond that could not be cut. In fact, the idea of they were together um, in verse, I believe it's 44. Uh, yeah, it says, and all who believed. So all of the 3,000 were together and had all things in common. The idea of the togetherness here is an constant, ongoing, inseparable togetherness. This is antithetical to the church of Jesus Christ today. We are not together all the time, right? We lack constant communion with one another and it affects fellowship, but our devotion to the truth and our de devotion to the fellowship should result in us being together more and more. As they were together, the more they committed and uh, uh, um, uh, devoted themselves to one another. So not only was there a constant togetherness, but there was personal connectedness. Notice how it says that they had all things in common in verse 44. This is expressed in 45, but it takes us to the next point. There was community, communion, and common care. They stuck it out together. It's a result of being devoted to the truth and being devoted to the fellowship. A.T. Robertson says, quote, They had all things in common. It was not actual communism, but they held all their property ready for use for the common good as it was needed. Then he goes on to say this. This situation appears nowhere else except in Jerusalem and evidently due to special conditions uh, there which did not uh, survive permanently, meaning that this wasn't a, an ongoing reality. Later, Paul... Will take special collection for poor saints in Jerusalem. So in other words, this selling of possessions wasn't a common occurring uh, event. The point, though, is that when they saw the need, they did what? They met that need. And the way that they did it, the cultural way that they could demonstrate that they care about the saints was if I had more than I needed, I just gave it away, I sold it. So that others could have, they could meet each other's need. And that's the third point. There was willing sacrifice for one another. How do you get to sharing in need if you're not devoted to the truth and to the fellowship? Now just logically think about that. 
you do not love the truth, do not love the fellowship of the saints, how then will you care for the saints? How then will you contribute to the need of the saints? It doesn't work that way. There could be unbelievers that contribute to saints, and thank the Lord if they do, but that's not the point that the, the author here, Luke, is make, making. Church sharing is connected to church devotion. It's a simple equation. The word changed the heart. They responded in, in obedience by being baptized. They devoted themselves to the truth and to the saints. And as a result of that, they cared for one another. The effect of this was an ongoing expansion of the gospel. Now there's something that I often find um, overlooked or misrepresented in the text. It's in verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, that is, remember they were Jews, so they were still worshipping in the temple, and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with, uh, um, with gladness. Uh, glad and generous hearts, praising God. Now this last line here where it says, and breaking bread. Take note, it says, day by day, temple, breaking bread, receiving food. All activities. When it says breaking bread, it's a idiomatic way of saying they had a meal together. Now you have to understand that meals in the ancient time was not just calling somebody over and then sending them home after you fed them. It was a personal, intimate, relational event. You didn't generally eat with your enemies, but if you ate with an enemy, you won him over. You took responsibility for that enemy. Often covenants were cut over meals. Meals were intimate. And remember how they ate during that time. They reclined next to the table. Yeah, somebody's stinky feet was going to be by your face. But that didn't matter to them. Remember um, John putting his head on Jesus' chest. Because they were so closely um, surrounding the table. There was not a lot of place to maneuver. There was close proximity. There was intimacy in a meal. So you didn't just have a meal with anybody, any bloke. You had intimate meals with people that you intimately shared and agreed with. It was personal. So don't just think food when you see breaking bread. It's not the breaking of bread as is seen in 42, but it is having a meal together because it's explained later. Breaking bread in the arms and they receive their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God. What an example. What a lesson. Personal devotion led to personal care amongst the saints. Can we learn from that? I'm sure we can. City churches are notoriously cold and distant. People generally have to drive a little bit further than rural churches. And because of that, there's a coldness in our relationships. We are not constantly in each other's homes. We are not constantly sharing meals with each other. We are not constantly building our unity, building our understanding of each other's needs. How can we help one another if we don't know what the needs are? Those who grow up in city churches, that is all that we know. But those who grow up in smaller house churches, it's, it's strange and foreign and cold to them coming into a big church where people just don't seem to care enough. We don't have to be the same. We don't have to follow the trend. I pray that God would, by His grace, change us by the gospel. A growing church, a biblical church, a healthy church is a church that prioritizes the Lord, prioritizes His Word, prioritizes His people, and prioritizes His worship. And lastly, we will see next week, prioritizes His supremacy in the expansion of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, May the work that you have begun in this place among these people 
continue until the day of Jesus Christ. That through us, many may come to saving faith. And through your, the preaching of your word here, there may be peace in the hearts of your people. There may be change in the lives of your people. That you alone may be glorified in the way that we demonstrate our devotion to you and to worship, to your truth and to your people. Forgive us, Lord, for not being as devoted as we should be, as committed to one another as we should be. I pray that you would change the way and the trajectory of this church, that we would become, like the Thessalonians, an example, even in the midst of affliction, hardship, and suffering, that we would become an example of the work that you are doing in the Western Cape. We give thanks to you for your grace, your goodness, your love, your patience with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.